All right, Jesse, I am still having nightmares about cut-off jean shorts stretched over the giant bodybuilder thighs over here. <laughs> What's the story this week? Obsessive love takes a bizarre turn in this wild tale of manacled Mormons, cloned puppies, and tabloid sensation. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about infatuation, scandal, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Wow. As always, thank you guys so much. But we also have another very, very big thank you that we have to announce right now. We have finally launched our Patreon. Finally. (laughs) Finally, finally, finally. Nearly two years. Yeah, 93 regular episodes before (laughs) we launched our Patreon. We're so excited for this. We've got four tiers, guys. Each comes with ad-free episodes and Patreon-only merch. Every level from I Really Like You on comes up with bonus episodes as well. Our first bonus episode came out on Monday. These bonus episodes, this one, this first one is pretty much like our normal format. I would say it's like a normal episode-ish. But we're probably going to experiment with all sorts of different bonus material, different formats. I'm going to try to get Andy to tell me a supernatural story. I know. I, I got to get my shit together, guys. I really want to. <laughs> I really, love, I really I, love telling supernatural stories, you know, like campfire style. So I just need to really hone in on that vibe. Yes. And we're going to record how we met the Jesse Andy origin story too. And so our first one that came out Monday We covered Vera Renzi, allegedly one of the most prolific female serial killers of all time. And I think it was quite the ride. Also, just talking more about the tiers, once you get to the Such a Lover category and above, you also get to do a monthly movie or true crime watch party with us. So more details are to come, but we're really, really excited about that. We kind of want it to be like a fun sleepover, hangout, chat vibe. It's going to be great. Yes, we'll include a link in the show notes so you can learn more about it. But for now, we want to give a big shout out to our very first set of patrons. Y'all are the A-team over here. So thank you, thank you, thank you to... Janelle P., Rachel C., and Amy R., Carly W., Michelle K., and Leah R., Leah F., Kelsey L., and Karis D. Heather B., our number one. She got in there the fastest. <laughs> Amanda K. and Joanne K. Margaret F., Jessica P., and your Heather B. Yay, I love you, Heather. I love you both, Heathers. <laughs> Jennifer G., Jamie C., and Tiffany D. Tara S., Jenny G., and Alicia J. And finally, our obsessed category ballers, Janessa H., Renee from Revere, and Jana. 
Excited to share the Love Murder OG Lovers NFT with you later this month. Obviously, because of Nathaniel and his crypto-ness, we had to do a special edition Love Murder NFT, and I'm super jazzed about it. I'm really excited too. Seriously, a huge, huge thank you to all of our patrons at every level and everyone who listens in general as well. Thank you so much. Yes, and if you're new to the show, this was probably a much longer intro (laughs) than we usually do. Hopefully it won't be this long in the future. And with that being said, thank you again to all of our Love Murder Club founders. But let's get to the show, shall we, Andy? Yes, please, because you found a Mormon case. Yes, I did. We have another. We have so many Mormon cases, actually. (laughs) All right. You're going to have to buckle your seatbelt for this one because it is wild. This is the greatest love story ever told, Joyce McKinney would tell you. Girl meets boy. They fall deeply in love. They make plans to wed until boy is ripped away from girl's loving embrace and sent overseas by a dangerous religious cult. So girl does what any red-blooded, totally head over heels in love, all American girl would do. Naturally, she hunts boy down, kidnaps him, and chains him to the bed in a sex cottage for a long weekend to, quote, reprogram him. Totally normal. Textbook dating, you know, all of that rom-com stuff. Totally. That's what I was going to say. Well, Andy, this story might not be classic rom-com material. It might just be a tad bit bizarre. This week, we will be taking a look inside the mad mind of Joyce McKinney, tabloid star of the 1970s. The story of Joyce and the manacled Mormon propelled her to fame, but that is just the beginning of this woman's crazy and confounding life. A story that will involve bondage, dogs with bugged collars, cloned pit bull puppies, burglary to acquire a prosthetic leg for a horse, And ultimately, a very, very sad murder. You can all thank our beloved Nancy for this wackadoodle story. She recommended a while ago on the Facebook group, and I thought it would be the perfect Nutsballs tale for my upcoming birthday. Yay, birthday episode. Yeah, so this one's going to be released on April 6th. Technically, my birthday is the 10th, but I think that we should just start celebrating on Wednesday, don't you think, Andy? 100%. I know you will too. Yes. (laughs) So big thanks to Nancy, who I know has been going through some really gnarly health issues. So our heart goes out to you, Nancy. And, you know, she's so awesome. Even though she's going through all this stuff, she also is doing her darndest to aid in Ukraine relief. So we love you, Nancy. She also gave me my sources today. The book I used was Joyce McKinney and the Case of the Manacled Mormon by Anthony Delano and a 2010 documentary by Errol Morris called Tabloid. Whoo, baby, you guys got to check out this documentary too. It's incredible. Joyce herself is in it and she is something else. So without further ado, let's jump into the deep end. Joyce McKinney was born on August 6, 1949. She grew up in a small town in North Carolina, the only daughter of a schoolteacher mother and a principal father. Joyce claims to have an IQ of 168, which, if true, would make her IQ higher than Stephen Hawking's. Oh, and how did she claim this? She says it on the documentary. I do not know what evidence she has to support this. I would like to think it's one of those online quizzes. 
Or like a newspaper, like clipping that you fill out and send in and then they. Exactly. Which were the, the online quizzes of the, of the before times. Yes. Indeed. As a result of these alleged academic gifts, she was put into accelerated courses. After high school, she earned her bachelor's degree from East Tennessee State, as well as a master's from University of North Carolina. She continued her education by beginning a doctorate program in speech and the dramatic arts at Brigham Young University, where she also taught master's level speech courses. Joyce was also a beauty pageant queen, winning several titles and eventually becoming Miss Wyoming. Oh. She had voluminous blonde hair, peaches and cream skin. She's like one of those people who are so white that they're actually pink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's her skin tone. Okay. A <laughs> wide mouth, tiny nose, and kind of a heart-shaped face. And she had a large bust and a tiny waist. So she was pretty much the perfect beauty pageant queen in the 60s and 70s. High school classmates of Joy's, as she preferred to be called, she liked to say, Joy, like joy to the world. Oh my God. Was it that thick of an accent? It is. It's probably a slightly, guys, I'm really bad at American Southern dialects. So like I kind of do a mishmash of like, you know, Texas with a North Carolina, which I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to do it a little bit for effect today because it's just <laughs> too good. She has more, her voice a little higher than mine. So it's a little softer. It's like joy, like joy to the world, you know? So you'll, you'll get the picture, but she is, I'm going to do some Southern accenting today. Her classmates had this to say to Christopher Buckland, who was a reporter from the UK Mirror. Brenda Gardner, a clerk in the county offices in the town of Newland, had shared a desk with Joyce at Cranberry High. She was always the brightest girl in the class, straight A's in all her subjects, she told him. I never recall her dating much back then. Back then was nine years earlier. What Brenda remembered best about Joy was just how nice she was. Same with another schoolmate who was now a detective in the local police force. Joy used to be a bit skinny, he reminisced, but she sure was a real blonde bombshell. She became a drum majorette and a cheerleader too. She was an only child, so I reckon she was a bit spoiled. She was always the best dressed girl in school, that I recall. And with her dad a principal and her ma a teacher, I think some of us kids were just a mite jealous. So Joy reported that she was the studious type in school and didn't even entertain dating until she was 17 years old, which was pretty late in that day and age. I mean, we're talking the 60s and we've covered cases where people were getting married at 14, 15, 16 years old. She had this to say herself about her adolescent years. My nickname in high school was Asperg that I was boy shy and I seldom dated. I didn't even play kissing games at parties. Also, that I was never known to smoke, drink, or use any types of drugs or profanity, and that I come from a very good family. Also, that I represented Avery County in the Miss North Carolina High School contest as North Carolina's ideal high school girl, as well as being a North Carolina junior Miss and later Miss Wyoming in the Miss USA pageant. Okay. Joyce was really fond of trotting out that she had been Miss Wyoming in the Miss USA pageant. But the truth was that she hooked up with a modeling and pageant coach, you know, one of those Barbizon coaches. Yep. yep. 
who informed her that the Miss Wyoming spot was vacant. No one was going to be Miss Wyoming at that year's Miss USA. So all she had to do was get sponsors to finance her trip to the pageant in New York City. That's Which is incredible. what she did. That's a real hack right there. Mm-hmm. She had actually never even set foot in Wyoming when she was given the privilege of representing the state in Miss USA. So it just would have been no one. I guess so. I like that not a single person in Wyoming that year thought it was a worthwhile endeavor. The whole state noped out of Miss USA that year. They're like, uh, but you have to go to New York. No, thanks. Her coach said that she was a doll to work with until she lost. And then she turned into a real banshee. Her manager said the trouble with Joy was that she thought she was a goddess already. Well... A goddess deserves a god, and there's one religion in which, after death, a man becomes a literal god of his own planet, Mormonism. I am assuming that this took place at BYU, but it certainly could have happened earlier and then made her choose Brigham Young University later. But she ended up converting to Mormonism after discussing what kind of young man she was interested in dating with a professor. She said, clean cut, no smoking, no drinking, no cussing. The professor said, well, that sure sounds like a Mormon to me. And thusly, Joyce became a Mormon, which, oh, wow. you know, it's, it's always a great idea to change your religion to chase boys. And when Joyce hit Utah, she apparently tried to land one of the most eligible Mormon bachelors that there was. This guy was from the first family of Utah, the Osmonds. This is on brand. Osmonds in the 1970s were basically the Mormon Kennedys. <laughs> I guess now would probably be the Romneys. I don't know. Oh, my God. Rumor has it that Joyce tried to cozy up to Wayne Osmond, but was ruthlessly shut down. Matriarch Olive Osmond would say rather brutally later, I can say categorically, she has never dated my boys. I know Joyce McKinney, and I talked to her just as much as the boys did. We were aware of her because, for a time, she was always there. She is an extremely beautiful, intelligent girl, but we never regarded her as anything special. As far as we were concerned, she's just another fan. A fan? Oh, knife Olive. to the heart. If you guys don't know who the Osmonds are, which our younger listeners absolutely will not. You might know Donnie and Marie. They had a like a Vegas residency, I think, for a while. I think they had their own talk show. But they were a thing. They were like, all of my references are very old. I'm like the Partridge family. <laughs> Babe, I think that they're still doing their show. Are they? Okay, yeah, yeah they're very famous. But with so, like a, new faces. Same people, new faces. <laughs> So there were reports that after Wayne got married to a 23-year-old beauty queen, also a pageant queen, that a distraught Joyce even attempted suicide. However, this is not the greatest love story ever told. That was her romance with another young Mormon named Kirk Anderson. Joyce said that during her BYU days, she was fond of cruising around town in her persimmon Corvette with a gal pal and her English sheepdog, Millie. One of these days, on one of these cruises, they were going by a ice cream parlor when she caught the attention of 19-year-old Kirk, who was driving his own white Corvette. 
Joyce was about 25-ish years old, I think, at this point. And her friend apparently said, hey, that cute boy in the Corvette is chasing you. After a while, Joyce pulled over. And this is, she details this in the documentary. So this is almost verbatim how she says they met. Okay. And Kirk pulled in behind her and apparently he told Joyce, hey, I like your car. And she said, I like yours too. And he said, well, I really like yours better. At which point Joyce offered to let him drive her Corvette. According to Joyce, the moment they met was magical. It was love at first sight. She described it as the moment Romeo and Juliet laid eyes upon each other. Whoa. Also, like textbook 101 you teach your daughter is like, don't get out of your car when someone's chasing you. Also, don't then offer the man the wheel. Yeah. Okay. Here, you can take my car. Like, was the sheepdog still in it? The sheepdog was still there. Oh, my God. And I think her friend, too. Okay. Yeah. No. She also, on the documentary, she's really rude about her friend, too. She's like, oh, I had this friend, and she was the opposite of me in every way. She was sleeping with hell's angels, smoking and drinking, and she was just terrible. And I was an angel. That's why we were opposites. She used to call me Holy Roller McKinney. Holy Roller McKinney? Something like that. I might be paraphrasing that part, but it was something like that. She was like, she used to make fun of me for being so straight. So she is going to go on and on about how magical this first meeting is, how immediately they were in love, how incredibly sexy Kirk was. Kirk is a very normal, normal looking man. He's a big guy. I mean, he is like six foot three at this point when he's young. I think he's around 250 pounds. Later on, I think he gets like heavier brown hair. He's, you know, fine. We're not talking about Brad Pitt, guys. This is not somebody where you just look at him and be like, oh, this guy's going to drive this woman to the extents in which she goes through. Okay. So even 35 years later on this documentary, she's like, he had beautiful blue eyes and sexiest smile and just the cleanest skin. (laughs) She was ass over tea kettle and in love with this guy. Oh my God. Joyce claims in the documentary that Kirk was just as smitten a kitten as she was. She said that he said, I love you on the first date, asked her to marry him on the second, and that they were naming their future children by date three. Whoa. That's a fast track. That is a fast track. Well, they both like Corvettes. I guess they like a fast ride. All of the names were starting with J's and K's for Joyce and Kirk. Of course. She said things started going wrong, however, when she was introduced to Kirk's mother, who stated that Joyce didn't look like a Mormon. In tabloid, she said it was because of her petite beauty queen figure while Kirk's mother was overweight. And she said, that's why she didn't like me. She's really, she's got some hangups about weight because she routinely, like twice in the documentary, she puts people down about their weight, which is really rude and unnecessary. And I'll try not to bring it up too much because I think it's just so unimportant. Yeah, I feel like there was another story that that happened in and you were like, I'm just not even going to give it attention because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's also she's not a tiny woman later on. You know, as we grow and our metabolism slow down, it's harder to maintain that beauty queen figure, m'lady. Despite this bump in the matrimonial road, Joyce said that they were planning their wedding when the two virgins were overtaken by passion. 
Because Joyce knew she was going to marry Kirk and indeed already felt spiritually married to him, she installed a waterbed in her Provo home to encourage Kirk to take the next step in their relationship. Kirk had, now this is all according to Joyce, gamely wanted to try the new waterbed out and suggested that Joyce put something sexy on. In Joyce's own words, here's what happened next from the Manacled Mormon. Oh, God. I put on a sexy nightgown. I took a shower and he was under the covers nude so we can distinguish who made the advances. I mean, can we? What? Yeah. She's trying to say that he came on to her. I'm 38, 24, 36, so I don't have to beg for boys' services. I was Miss Wyoming in the USA pageant, so I didn't have to seduce boys. Anyway, he pulled me into bed. Then recalled Joy, he said, Joy, my precious little virgin, I'm so glad you waited for me. I told him we couldn't have intercourse that day. We had to have our white wedding in a church. It was very important to me. But I didn't reckon how it'd feel to be in a big king-size bed with your betrothed. So Kirk started teasing me, and then he got on top of me, and he started to penetrate me, and I said, hey, babe, we gotta wait. I was pretty aroused. After this little tussle, Joy said she had begun to fear that she might be pregnant. Kirk told her not to worry. They would be getting married anyway. According to her, he added, I want to see your blonde-haired babies running around the house. If this affectionate declaration had been intended to make them feel less guilty, the effect was short-lived. As Joy told it, a disconcerting change came over her satiated lover. He started raving about what the church was going to do to him. He started acting strange, like he was going into a trance. He got strangely quiet. His eyes got glazy. He said he had to go see his bishop. The following day... Kirk made an abrupt departure. He appeared to have realized that on the eve of setting out on his mission, he had committed a sin that could cost him everything he might gain as a good Mormon. He went to this bishop, said Joy, and in the typical way of the Mormon church, he was completely ripped apart. He was told I was not worthy of him and that he should break off our engagement. So Joyce called Kirk's mother and begged to be connected with her erstwhile fiance, but Kirk was gone on tabloid. She said he vanished. I don't mean he left me. I don't mean he abandoned me. I don't mean he left me for another woman. I mean, he evaporated into thin air. There's also some messy, messy, messy reports back and forth about Joy harassing the family after this so-called disappearance. Of course, I could see her being like, completely manicked about it. Yes. So she did the only thing a jilted fiance would do. She moved to LA and worked three jobs in order to hire a private investigator to hunt that poor 19-year-old boy down. He was 19. 19 when this is occurring. And she was 25? Yes. Also, the timeline, just to like make sure I'm clear, did this all happen within like a couple of days from when they had sex? Like they got engaged or they were engaged before? I think it was only about two months. Okay. That they were together. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it was something, it was within weeks. It might have been more like six weeks. I don't think they were together very long. 
Somewhere along the way, Joyce met a man named Keith Joseph May, who was in his early to mid-20s as well. Keith, or KJ as she called him, was a budding architect and an amateur pilot. He was also terribly smitten with Joyce. Later, others would report that he would have robbed a bank for her if she had asked. Oh my goodness. But that's not what she asked of him. No, 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 no. She simply asked Keith to help her go on a rescue mission to save her fiancé and deprogram him from the church's evil influence. Over the next two years, Joyce made money for this so-called rescue mission, and a PI eventually traced Kirk to England, where he was on a mission trip. Now, we have previously discussed how important mission trips are to young Mormon men, especially. If one is able to afford to take such a trip, it is a seminal experience in a young Mormon's life. So in Joyce's perspective, Kirk was stolen from her and shipped abroad to be further brainwashed by a religion she was now calling a cult. At this point, she had either been excommunicated from the Mormon church or she had left on her own volition. And, you know, the excommunication might have come after the reports of harassment that the Anderson family had to move to California and Oregon. And even Kirk had to go under an assumed name to try to get away from her. This escalated quickly. It did indeed. It gets crazier. (laughs) But of course, really, he's just doing his mission trip, which is something that 53,000 Mormons are doing right now as we speak, according to Google. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So this is a totally normal rite of passage that she's acting as if this was something done to her and Kirk to keep them apart, you know? Was she actually a virgin when they had sex? I do not know because you can't really trust anything that Joyce says at all. It's possible. And we'll get into why it's possible. Was she a virgin in the heteronormative P and V intercourse way? Potentially. P and V? Are you literally in third grade? Just really wanted to illustrate what kind of sexual intercourse I'm talking about here. We're such moms. We're such hetero moms. Such hetero moms right now. But whether or not Kirk wanted saving, my guess would be not, she was going to, quote, save him come hell or high water. So when she had amassed a savings of $17,000, she decided to put her plan in action. So this is why converting for inflation is important, y'all, because $17,000 sounds like, okay, I could pick that up, you know, working an extra job. That's not a lot. But $17,000 during that time in the 70s is more like 80 grand today. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So she, yeah, she put together a good chunk of change. Yeah. So now that she had the loot, she needed a crew. Joyce had Keith May, who was her number two henchman extraordinaire, but she now needed muscle men to be bodyguards and a pilot. So she put an ad in the paper that read as follows. Free trip to Europe. Big, adventurous dudes wanted. Must be over 6'2", at least 210 pounds. Seeking a Rocky or Mr. Atlas type. Rocky or Mr. Atlas. Wow. She would have liked the guys in the last episode. I was just going to say, I mean, where was he to respond to that? I think he was being born. (laughs) Prefer bodybuilder or musician? Musician? (laughs) 
Especially in the 70s. I'm thinking of all those skinny, long-haired hippies with their bell bottoms and their peace and love. What are they going to do? Play the guitar to keep them in the room? Like, come on, what's happening? (laughs) Because once we get Kirk, we can serenade him. Yeah. I guess maybe that's like to get the brainwashing out. Maybe, maybe. I don't, I cannot even begin to fathom what goes through this woman's head. All expenses paid if you help a lovely fox fulfill a unique romantic sexual fantasy. Oh my God, it just gets better and better. As part of her wedding party. Must be available in August and September. She attracted a bodybuilder named Gil Parker and a pilot named Jackson Shaw. Jackson is actually on the documentary and he said that Joyce made quite the favorable first impression. After responding to the ad, he was summoned to an address. He expected it to be an office building, but was in fact Joyce's apartment building. After meeting with Keith May for a few minutes, Joyce came out of a room wearing a see-through blouse with nothing on underneath. No bra and nada. 35 years later, he's on the documentary and he is still blushing and giggling about it. You can tell this was a real moment in his life. Oh my God. So yeah, he said that he was immediately taken with Joyce and he actually wanted to ask her out, but he didn't know what her deal with Keith was. And then he actually found out what the trip was all about and his hopes of romancing Joyce were dashed, of course. She told him that they were going to liberate her fiance from a cult group. Now, Joyce had a lot of money because she's talking about what kind of plane they can rent, you know, what they're going to do, how she's paying for all the bills. She's going to put them up in hotels, how they're going to rent this cottage, maybe for a couple months. He's like, lady, where are you getting all of this money? And she's like, oh, I'm a model. On the documentary, he's like, I just didn't know models made that much money. Apparently, to further solidify these guys' loyalty, Minxie Joy took her crew to a nude beach while they were in the planning process, and she was apparently a full nude knockout. So the plan was to intercept Kirk at this church where he was meeting converts and then convince him to get into a plane with the team to fly the sum 250 miles to a cottage in Devon that Joyce had already outfitted. Then the two would reunite, deprogram Kirk, and eventually get married. That's the plan. Deprogramming. Also, she hasn't seen this man in two years. Uh, All good. All good. This is a crack plan. Wow. So the first snag was when the quartet arrived in London and Gil was flagged. So he had put bodyguard under occupation on his passport application. Okay. And they wanted to know when they landed who he was guarding. So he said, Joyce. And they said, why? Why is this man guarding you? You're not a famous actress. You're not, you know, in danger. You're not a a diplomat or a dignitary. And there wasn't really a good answer. They can't be like, we're going to go kidnap a Mormon missionary. So at this point, Gil was like, look, this is too much for me. You're weird. This whole plan's weird. I don't like this. I'm not going to get in trouble for this. I'm out. And he basically just turned around and went back to the United States. Good for Gil. Good for Gil. They're one man down now. So after Mr. Clean takes off... (laughs) Jackson was feeling really uncomfortable because he's like, I 
don't know. I think these two are kind of weird. I think Gil was right. Something is going on here. And he, you know, was expecting this all expenses paid trip to London and the UK. And he was like, so let's do some sightseeing. And they're like, no, we have to get to the spot and start staking out Kirk. We have to capture Kirk. Yes. And he thought that in his mind, he was thinking, oh, they're going to go and be like, hey, you know, come on with us. Like, we're finally freeing you, you know, that he's an adult and that he is going to leave with them on his own volition. And when they start casing this church out, he's seeing this young man who seems perfectly happy, obviously is very free to come and go and do whatever he wants. So his first inkling was, this guy is not in trouble the way she was saying he's in trouble. And then his second inkling that something may be wrong was a bag that he saw that had guns, chloroform, and chains in it. Where did they get that? Did they bring it with them? They brought it with them. So the guns were not real. They were very, very realistic replicas. Okay. The chloroform was real. So he sees this stuff and Jackson is like, yeah, I'm I'm fucking out of here. Bye bye, <laughs> you batshit crazy motherfuckers. I'm out. So now it's just down to Joyce and Keith. On Thursday, September 15th, 1977, Keith arranged a meeting with Kirk Anderson claiming to be a man named Bob Bosler, who was interested in converting to the Mormon faith. Kirk, who had of course never met Keith, jumped at the opportunity to introduce him to Mormonism. At the arranged time, Keith kidnapped Kirk from the steps of a meeting house of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints in Surrey. He did so by producing the fake gun that, like I said, looked extremely realistic and shoving him into a car where Joyce was waiting. So Kirk would later say that they put a bag over his head for the entire 250 mile drive to Devon and that he had no idea where he was, but he did know that it was Joyce. He did. Okay. Yeah, when he got in the car, he saw her before they put the bag over his head and she was there wearing a dark wig. Now, in Joyce's version of events, she said that he looked at her and he was still a little vacant because she's keeping the line that he was brainwashed here. And she said that he said, how long have you been in England? And they told me that you didn't love me anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she's really <laughs> trying to make a case for this whole he was brainwashed not to love me thing. Mm-hmm. So they drive to this love cottage that she wants to make like a honeymoon for him. And Joyce said that she had wanted everything in the cottage to remind Kirk of their other night of passion two years prior. Allegedly, she had even tried to ship a waterbed to Devon, but it hadn't been possible. They had sex one time. This is every man's worst nightmare. Literally, this is every man's Worse, men should think about this more when they have one night stands, you know? This should really be a lesson for young men out there. This is the real fatal attraction. We're going to get into this, Andy, because it gets it gets worse. So, so wait, we got to go back and down. Okay, okay, sorry, How sorry, How beautiful sorry. she has set up this cottage. <laughs> but it doesn't have a waterbed, so it's not that beautiful. No waterbed. But she did bring the quilt 
that was on the bed the night that they mutually deflowered each other. Oh my God. She bought monogrammed with his initials, blue silk sheets made to match his eye color. Did she like bring a Pantone of his eye color to the sheet maker? Apparently. She had brought uh, either a tape player or a record player. I couldn't see which one it was to play the same song that they had been listening to that previous evening two years earlier. Joyce had also stocked the fridge with all of Kirk's favorite foods, chocolate cake, southern fried chicken. Oh, he loved my cooking, she says, and mashed potatoes. She also brought cinnamon massage oil so that she could lavish her lover victim with a sensual (laughs) back rub. So he could smell like Christmas. Because nothing says sexy like smelling like a piece of big red chewing gum. This poor boy. Oh, my God. We are laughing about this, but it's going to take a dark twist. It's going to take a dark twist. It's hard not to laugh at this part. I mean, this all sounds just fine, except for the fact that Kirk said he was chained to the bed on a 10-foot lead so he was able to go to the toilet. Here again, Joyce has a different version of events. But both accounts do involve this poor guy getting spread eagle chained to a bed at some point. So we're going to go through Joyce's version of events first. She said the goal of this honeymoon cottage was to reunite and reconnect with Kirk. Once he was away from the evil clutches of the church, she knew that he would once again become her sweet, loving Kirk and that the two would get married, which is why she had also brought her wedding dress and engraved wedding bands ready to go. Who's going to marry them? Keith May got ordained for this special occasion. I'm just pulling that one out of my ass. I have no idea. At some point, we're going to talk about how she has an idea that they're going to elope in London. Okay. This is truly, to your point earlier, Andy, this is terrifying. Imagine that your ex rolled up, chloroformed you, chained you to a bed, and was wearing a wedding dress and being like, we're together again. (laughs) Oh, God. And you know what's really sad, though? is that you'll see how this plays out in the media and in the court system. Nobody actually feels bad for this guy because he's a big 250-pound guy and she is this 112-pound hot chick. Yeah, but so crazy has no weight. Well, yeah, she later tries to use the weight as a way to say, like, I couldn't have kidnapped him because I'm this tiny little thing and he's but this then, big old boy. lady, we found your ad. We know you were looking for muscle men slash musicians. <laughs> And of course, the sex stuff, which we see all the time when an attractive 20-something teacher preys upon a teenage boy, it's always reported like, oh, look at that lucky guy instead of what it really is, which is rape and sexual assault. Yeah. (laughs) Which is rape. Which is rape. So Joyce's story continues. She said that, you know, sometime shortly after they got settled into the cottage, they were slow dancing when Kirk got aroused. And at that point, they moved to the bed, which if he was chained to it, must have been pretty close. And then he asked for a back rub. She began to rub his back when she got frustrated working around Kirk's temple garments. So she ripped them literally ripped them into pieces off of his body and threw them into a burning fire. This is her story still? 
This is still her story. I don't know how she thinks this is going to make her look good. Yeah. Temple garments are what is occasionally called by non-Mormons, which I also found out can be kind of a derisive term. But just so you guys know what we're talking about, the magic Mormon underwear. They are sacred undergarments that are worn close to believers' bodies as both a symbolic reminder of covenants made in temple ceremonies. I mean, I can understand how they would help you stay chaste if you've seen them. Yeah. They're a little less than sexy there. And they're also used as protection, either literal or symbolic, from the evils of the world. So the act of her ripping these garments off and burning them in the fire, I mean... It's satanic. To the, it's so, to, it is. It's a yeah. modern day Bible story <laughs> yes. about this crazed, evil seductress that is ripping away your godly protection <laughs> and tossing it in a burning fire. It's she's and she's like, and I threw it in the fire where all of those things belong as far as I'm concerned. Like she's very righteous about this. And so there is a guy on the documentary who is kind of giving a perspective. Now, I don't know if he's still in the Mormon church or if he has left since it wasn't clear, but he was definitely the Mormon expert on the documentary. And he's great, by the way. I love this guy. And he is talking about how important these these garments are to Mormons and that even after people leave the church, sometimes they still wear them because it's so ingrained how holy and how protective these things are and that you're kind of afraid to take them off. So this act is is very egregious. And afterwards, Joyce is going on on the documentary talking about this and she goes, well, then Kirk was impotent. You think? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you were taking away the foundation of his belief system after you've kidnapped him and he doesn't know where he is and he's chained to a bed that he can't get a heart on. Yeah, he can't get a boner with that going on. It's shocking. Yeah. So she says that he was impotent because of the brainwashing, not because of what she's doing to him. She said he wasn't supposed to have sexual thoughts. So I knew that the only way to break him out of Mormonism was to make love to him. So she said that they started making love, but then he jumped up and he started praying. And on the documentary, it's very offensive. She starts pretending to be her victim, praying to the prophet to save him and to help him and to like steer him away from evil. And she's like, and he's going, oh, you know, oh, prophet, save me, blah, blah, blah. And she's like pretending to do this whole thing. And it's just, so mind-boggling that she doesn't see what's going on here. So she said at that point, she left him to go get a cold glass of water. And when she returned, he had ejaculated and he was crying. Um, So (laughs) this poor boy. And so then she said that, you know, she was telling him that having sexual feelings is normal, that, you know, men have dreams like this and it's a totally normal thing. She said at this point, she brought out a Christian marital manual that said that if a man is repressed sexually and it causes impotence, that the way you cure him is to tie him up completely. Therefore, when he's engaging in a sexual act, 
he can't control it. Therefore, it's not his fault that he's having sex. Oh. And then he can thusly enjoy the sexual act. Oh, my God. So this is how she excuses the fact that she got Keith May to come in from the other room and help her tie this poor boy to the bed spread eagle. Oh, my God. She said that it was ropes. He said it was chains. There was also some handcuffs involved. But potato, patata, this poor kid is chained to a bed. Yeah. Or tied. Or tied. It's tied. Yeah, he's tied. So this is also where the manacled Mormon name of this case comes from, obviously. Carrying on in Joyce's version, once she did this, she said it was great that they made love for three days straight, that they didn't even get out of bed. Well, he's chained to the bed. Of course you couldn't get out of bed. Oh, my God. (laughs) She is on this documentary talking about a straight-up assault, and she is getting teary-eyed saying, when he kissed me, we melded souls. It was like, I don't even know where I stopped, and he began. Well, it was probably with Keith, who was also there. Well, apparently Keith did leave the cottage for at least a 24-hour period. And I don't know where Keith went. Do you think she made him sleep in the car? Yeah, I don't know. He's like doing a walkabout in the woods. So after three days of this, Joyce said Kirk proposed that since they were already married in God's eyes, that they should go to London and make it official. Later, he would tell authorities that this was, of course, a ruse so he could get away from this nutter. He had no idea where he was. He was afraid they're in the countryside too. So he couldn't just kind of wander out and hope that somebody found him. And he's chained up. So he's like, I needed to tell her that we should go get married in London because then I would be around people. Yeah. So he, Keith and Joyce drove to London where they took in some tourist sites and they got hamburgers at the Hard Rock Cafe. Really romantic. So romantic. (laughs) Now, Joyce's defense later is that he was obviously unchained for this whole bit where they're touring London and going to the Hard Rock Cafe and getting burgers. So she says this whole time, he wasn't chained up. He could have left. She said there was plenty of bobbies around. He could have gone to any of the authorities at this point. They went by a police station. He didn't go in. She said, though, while they were, I think while they were getting the hamburgers still, he did get a newspaper and he came back and there was an article about a Mormon missionary who had been kidnapped. So he said, this is really bad. You know, we we should probably talk to our parents about this. I need to tell the police that I wasn't kidnapped. So they called both sets of parents. Joyce's family allegedly said, welcome to the family, son, because she had called them to say, He's eloping with me. He's not kidnapped. I saved him. Yes, I saved him. Versus when obviously Kirk talked to his parents who were in the United States and scared to death about the fact that their son went missing three days earlier. And his family clearly went apeshit and was like, what are you doing? Why are you with that woman? What is going on? Are you safe? Yeah. So they said that Scotland Yard had actually gotten involved. So- Yes, and I don't know if that was true at this point. It was just what it might have been what Kirk was saying to get her to feel like this was a serious situation. Yep. So he said, Scotland Yard is involved. You guys could get in really, really big trouble. I know, obviously, I went with you. I love you, Joyce, but I need to get back to the church 
so that I can tell them that I wasn't kidnapped and that I love you and that we're going to get married and everything's going to be okay. And so at that point, she tearfully agreed with him. So they actually took him to Victoria Station and she describes it in this overly romantic way that he was leaving and he was going to send for her so they could still get married when everything calmed down and that she watched the train pull away and she said and he mouthed as it pulled away I love you oh my god she's delusional delusional Jesse you know what that sound is that's the sound of another sale on Shopify the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. Honestly, it's amazing. They allow you to build your own website essentially from scratch with all of these different formats and themes that you can pick. It allows you to keep track of your shipping, get discounted rates with UPS. I mean, the the list is endless. I could talk about it all day. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. So boom, Kirk goes back, tells the police, I was freaking kidnapped and assaulted for three damn days. Keith and Joyce were arrested in a sting operation a little after that, in which essentially Kirk was the bait. And he told her that everything was calming down, that he loved her and that she should come to this location so that they could run away together again. That was smart. And then she came, her and Keith were arrested right away. Now, this case blew up in the British media. It was clear right away that the hook was that this sexy young woman had taken this young man on a sex romp. And that was the whole story, less about the fact that there had been, you know, a rape and kidnapping case. The chief superintendent said in the press conference, when asked if there was a sexual element to the case... This is the most extraordinary case I've ever investigated. All I could say is that we found a certain equipment. But I'll tell you what, I've never been lucky enough to have anything like that happen to me. Shut <laughs> up. Amazing. That's amazing. As wow. Keith May was to say later, This is a pretty strange country. If Joy had been busted in the U.S. for doing what she did to Kirk, the only things the cops would have done before they let her go was to make sure they had her phone number. Oh, my God. Does not make it okay. 
does not make it okay. But we're talking the 70s. It's a very different time. They are thinking this guy got his dick wet. He should be happy. Wow. They are not getting the context of this entire situation. <laughs> the whole kidnapping context? The whole kidnapping, the rape, the uh, also made him lose his vow of chastity. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, a big, important covenant to him and his religion. I mean, it, he already had lost it, but you know, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, lost back to your potato, potato. <laughs> Joyce and Keith's car had yielded two very convincing replicas of 38 Colt Detective Special Revolvers, a bottle of chloroform, tapes of sexy and soothing music, as well as a complete bridal wardrobe the wedding dress, the rings, and a whole lot of frilly baby doll teddies. So this all corroborated Kirk's story. Keith and Joyce were immediately thrown into prison and the media went wild to try to get a glimpse of this treacherous seductress. Joy had the same desire to get her story out to the press as well. So the press wants to see her. She wants to see the press. Fortunately for her, she was allowed to use the prison library. She says in the documentary that while she was in the prison library, she was reading the Bible. And in the back of the Bible, there were two blank pages, as if put there by God himself, she said. So she proceeded to tear these blank pages out and write two notes. One was to her parents and the other was to the press where she said that Kirk left with her willingly He was only changing his story now because he feared excommunication. Well, what do you think she did with these notes to get them to the public, Andy? She (laughs) rolled both of them up tightly and she shoved one up her vagina and one up her rectum. And then when she was being transferred to a prison van... She apparently got into the prison van and the prison van had a a little window. She then, now this is on the documentary. She's talking about this. She said, I pushed them, I I grunted them out and I popped them out the window and a man saw it and I motioned for him to pick it up, pick it up. And I gestured, you know, for him to mail them, mail them. And he did. So he took your shit note and you mailed it. Was a shit note for the press or for her family? Because I feel like it's kind of rude for the press. <laughs> kind of rude for her family, too. Yeah, but, you know, they changed her diapers at some point. I feel like it's the most rude for the man who didn't know that they had been up her rectum. Imagine if that guy never knew. Also, and though, like, how about... documentary years later, and he's like, what? How about you don't pick up pieces of items that fall out of a prison bus? It's kind of his fault. So leading up to Keith and Joyce's bail hearing, the press was a buzz and everyone was trying to find out what the real story was, you know, so the press is trying to figure it out. This is going to play out in court as well. And the person who's the Mormon expert on the documentary kind of talks about how there's three scenarios going on here. What could have actually happened that sex cottage weekend? Number one, Kirk's story. He was totally unwilling. He was 100% kidnapped. He went not willingly. He was chained to the bed. He was raped. 
Then there's Joyce's story. It was consensual. He went with her willingly. There was a real love type relationship here. But when he got back to, you know, these so-called evil Mormons, they brainwashed him again. And in order to stay in the church and not get excommunicated, he had to say that he was forced to have sex with her. And then there's the third. There's somewhere in the middle where obviously at one point, it seems like this relationship was consensual, you know, a couple years ahead. And even he might have genuinely been kind of excited to see her again in some capacity. But even in Joy's own words, he said no. He said no repeatedly. He prayed. He said, we can't do this. We can't go that far because of my belief system. So even in the best version, giving her the greatest benefit of the doubt here, he still said no. So it is still rape. Yeah, I do love that it's the Mormon specialist going through these three scenarios and not like the chief of police. No, they didn't have the chief of police on the documentary. They had a reporter that covered it. They had two different reporters, like a reporter and a photographer that covered this case because it gets real tabloid seedy later. So we'll, we'll get into it. December 7th, 1977 was the day of the bail hearing for Keith and Joyce. And while she was being let in, she was yelling, she was using his priest name, his Mormon priest name, but basically she was saying, Kirk fears excommunication. Let the public know. The British court had never seen anything like Joyce McKinney before. And she really put on a show. We are going to actually first talk about Kirk's testimony. And then we're going to go back to Joyce, but I'm going to have to continue to remind you that she's saying this stuff in British court. (laughs) So Kirk said that he was put into the car at gunpoint. He fully believed that the gun was real. Joyce was wearing a wig when he got into the car and she said, did you think 8,000 miles of ocean would keep us apart? He said, she told me she still loved me and she wanted to marry me. She said that I could be there in the cottage for two or three months. And she intended that we should just be together from that time on. Oh my God. Oh my God. The man I knew as Bob placed a leather strap attached to a chain on my leg the next day. And he attached the chain to the bed. Bob? It was a- Like Bob. Because remember, Keith was going as Bob Bosler. That was his pseudonym. Oh my God, that's so scary though. Like, this is Bob and he, Bob like chains you up. Yes, you don't know whether Bob's gonna take a whack at you too. Oh my God, that is so scary. It was about 10 feet long, so I could in fact move off the bed, but not very far. He said he had to chain me for her protection. I had thought about escape, but I really did not know where I was. I decided if I tried to cooperate, I could gain their confidence and then I could sort out a release. Joy told me that there was to be a ransom. The ransom would be that I would have to give her another baby. Another, because later it comes up that when they had that one night of passion, she tried to tell everyone that she was pregnant and that the Mormon church said that she and her baby were not good enough for him. And that they weren't going to take care of her baby. But then she later claimed she had a miscarriage. Doubtful that that baby existed at all ever. They had the sex the one time. But of course, she was saying another baby because she was still going under the narrative that she had been pregnant and lost the baby. 
He said he was forced to have sex with her on the third night. When she came into the room, there was a fire in the fireplace and she put some music on. I recognized it because she had played it in the apartment two years earlier when we first had intercourse. She was wearing a negligee. She came to me and lay on the bed. I said I would like my back rubbed. She proceeded to do that, but I could tell she wanted to have intercourse. I said I did not, and she tried to convince me. She then left the room and returned a few minutes later with May. May was carrying a red flight bag and had chains, ropes, and padlocks, he said. May and McKinney used these to tie him down on his back to the four corners of the bed so he was spread eagled. The chained love session then took place. The prosecutor asked, although you didn't mentally want it to happen, how could it physically have occurred? And he said she had oral sex. Oh, my God. That makes perfect sense. It's a physiological response. He's tied up. She's giving him head. Any man is going to respond to that, whether he wants to or not. Absolutely. He's a, he's 21, right? Yes. Like, come on. Yeah, he was like 20 or 21 in this. Uh, meanwhile, in the documentary, Joy said that she could not have raped Kirk. She didn't think it was possible for a woman to rape a man because, quote, that's like putting a marshmallow in a parking meter. A guy either wants to have sex to or not. Oh, my God, a marshmallow in a parking meter. Marshmallow in a parking meter. <sighs> wow. Wow. In Joyce's testimony, she waxes poetic about her love for Kirk and with Kirk, how they are star-crossed lovers, rift apart by his religious overlords. And, I mean, she was really given some good copy here. She utters this line that becomes famous. She said... I loved Kirk so much that I would have skied down Mount Everest in the nude with a carnation up my nose for him. Oh, my God. They're in court. The British press is like, move aside, Keats. Move aside, Shelley. There's a new poet in town. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) About that line. Wow. Wow. So They printed that everywhere. I mean, it got so bad that there was like one paper, I can't remember which paper it was, that wasn't covering Joyce McKinney. And they literally were advertising themselves as the paper without Joyce McKinney. Oh my God. <laughs> she was so omnipresent. And I did read a report that actually the first version of that famous statement was a carnation between my nipples. But the reporters thought up my nose was better and more printable. Between my nipples, like... That doesn't even make sense. No. I mean, how close are your nipples? They can't hold a carnation. Oh my God, she's crazy. Wow. So she went on to detail her plan to save Kirk, in quotations, and that she also, as a tiny woman, could not have possibly been able to rape such a large man. Then in court, she goes on to explain the bondage. Oh my God. At this point, she said, with all of the poise of a lecturer, I think I should explain sexual bondage and Kirk's sexual hang-ups. Kirk was raised by a very dominant mother. He has a lot of guilt about sex because his mother was overprotective of him his whole life. When we make love, he has to have the lights out and wash up afterwards. He believes truly that sex is dirty. Kirk has to be tied up to have an orgasm. I cooperated because I loved him. 
and I wanted to help him. Sexual bondage turns him on because he doesn't have to feel guilty. The thought of being powerless before a woman seems to excite him. I didn't have to give him oral sex. I did it at his request because he likes it. Seemingly in wonder at the recollection, she paused. It was just amazing. He kept going and going. And then it seems like she remembered where she was in court and where this had all led to. He's had all kinds of temper tantrums after sex. I guess putting me in prison is an extension of those tantrums. He wants the sex, but he hates me afterwards. (laughs) Temper tantrum. Yes, typically on my temper tantrums, I throw someone in jail. Why didn't I marry someone who didn't have some kinky hangups? I loved him and I wanted to help him. Many men go to prostitutes because their wives can't or won't satisfy their desires and fantasies. I wanted to keep him happy in bed. I wanted to satisfy and pleasure him. I'm a very old-fashioned girl. I believe a man should be pampered. Oh, my God. Is everyone dying? I was reading this last night to Nathaniel, and he's like, I just imagine all of the little white wigs spinning, and they're all like Archimedes the Owl from Sword in the Stone going, watch, watch, watch. (laughs) They must have been dying. Then she started crying piteously on the stand saying that her father had a bad heart and that this might be the last Christmas she ever gets to spend with him. So they need to let her out on bail. After that, Joyce rested her case. The astonished court moved that Keith and Joyce were going to be held over for trial in the kidnapping and imprisonment of Kirk, but they would be released on bail to a rented house where they could reside with a landlady and Joyce's parents. You'll notice that there was no rape or sexual assault charge there, and that's because under the Sexual Offenses Act of 1956, then in force in the UK, because Kirk was male, no crime of rape had been legally committed. Wow. Yes, the act stated women as victims explicitly. It does not say persons. It says women. So it could not apply to him as a man. It's really sad. It's very sad. So they were now out on bail and Joyce is a gosh darn tabloid sensation. All of the British rags were dying to get an exclusive from her. They wanted pictures of her. They are all sending reporters to North Carolina, to Utah, even California to try to dig up some dirt on her. Most of Anthony Delano's book is actually more about the aggressive tabloid wars that were happening around this case than the actual case. Okay. Joy was an honest-to-goodness celebrity for her full 15 minutes here. (laughs) Publications were offering her scads of money to pose nude to recreate her famous line, and she was publicly refusing in her Southern Belle way. She said, I have never posed nude and I never will. (laughs) In April of 1978, the Daily Express got the grand idea that they should have their gossip columnist, Peter Torrey, who is also on the documentary and was a former actor himself, escort Joyce to the movie premiere of Joan Collins's film, The Stud. When Joyce stepped out of the Rolls Royce onto the red carpet, the crowd went wild. 
So wild, in fact, that star Joan Collins was allegedly miffed about the incredible attention that the blonde criminal was receiving at her own movie premiere. And that's kind of annoying. It's really annoying. Peter Torrey on the documentary said that the cheers for Joy were bigger than the ones for Joan, the actual star. That's annoying. Naturally, Joy was just eating up the attention. She was even photographed getting kissed by Keith Moon, the drummer for The Who. So crazy. Well, this event was a very clever diversion because as Joyce was rubbing elbows with the glitterati, Keith May was packing their bags and getting ready for a flight from justice. (laughs) Somehow they had managed to get valid passports by stealing. I mean, they're not valid, but they're technically official passports by stealing the identification numbers of dead people. Oh, my God. Well, this is all going on. They managed to do this. Now, these passports were British passports. So Keith and Joyce pretended to be deaf, even linking up with a deaf mime group that was traveling from the UK to Canada. Oh, my God. That's so low. It's so low and it's very offensive on the documentary when she tells the story about how she pretended to be deaf. It's it's bad. It's real bad. She's not, I mean, I think we've established she's a bad person. After landing in Toronto, they made their way into the U.S. near Buffalo, New York. And then they set off on a cross-country adventure, never staying in one place for more than three nights to continue to evade the authorities. Also, Joyce was apparently an expert makeup artist and costumer. She said that during that early, early morning escape from the UK, she essentially, these are my words, she didn't say this, but she described it. She essentially Mrs. Doubtfired herself wearing a fat suit and a curly headed granny wig. Stop it. I do have to hand it to her. She's very resourceful. I mean, how much luggage did she have, by the way? Everything for the cottage? A fat suit? What did she think she needed that for? Oh, my God. When their escape was made public, Joyce's fame and notoriety only grew. She ended up selling her life story to the UK's Daily Express for 40,000 pounds. Wow. And I mean, she needed it. She's living life on the lamb now. Yep, yep. So... 40,000 pounds at the time translated to 75,000 American dollars in 1978. So that $75,000 would be about $325,000 in today's money. That's a pretty penny to keep you Hot going. damn. In order to get the scoop, Peter Torrey had to set up a clandestine meeting with Joyce and Keith at a decidedly unsexy location, the Airport Hilton in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Joy said, you check in. We'll come there after dark. We'll be in disguise. Wink, wink. Peter Torrey had $75,000 in small bills and was waiting in his dingy room when the door knocked. In walked Joy and Keith in mother effing blackface. Shut the fuck up. Tell me you're a piece of shit without telling me you're a piece of shit. So this is what Peter Torrey said about it. Oh my God, he had to have just been completely blown away. He was stunned. Imagine the worst kind of Alibaba makeup, real (laughs) pantomime slap. They looked like a couple of escaped circus clowns. 
Ever the gentleman, Tori invited the pair in. They headed for his bathroom where they spent an hour splashing about to remove the black grease paint. The bath, the walls, the towels, everything was covered with the stuff, Tori recalled. God knows what the hotel thought. Jessica. Why? What? Who is this for? The next day, Joyce insisted that her photo spread include her and Keith dressed as nuns, which evidently had been another disguise in Joyce's old bag of tricks. The Express was elated and planned to run an entire week's worth of the bizarre tale called The Greatest Love Story Ever Told, which Joy said was the name of her upcoming book. The greatest love story that never existed. (laughs) The greatest love story that happened in my head. And she never actually published this, so it is actually the greatest love story never told. Never told, yeah. (laughs) So they're doing this whole spread with her, but little did they know that the Daily Mirror, their competitor, had been sniffing around LA and had found some straight up filthy gold. They had managed to locate an ex-boyfriend of Joyce's named Steve Moskowitz. Steve was still besotted with Joyce and was even currently in possession of her most prized belongings, her persimmon Corvette and her beloved sheepdog, Millie. Oh my God, she just left it? Well, apparently she did try to bring it to the UK, but because of the quarantine and rabies laws, she had to send it back to the United States. So Gil Parker and the dog both immediately bounced back to the United States. Oh, my God. And Steve, this guy that she's just leaving in the dust, had to go and collect the dog after it was sent back. So sad. So the reporter is looking at Steve and he goes, dude, why are you taking care of her dog and her car and defending her and being loyal to her when... She very publicly is talking about how she's madly in love with this other guy and she's traveling with another another guy, Keith May. So where are you in this story? Like, why are you even still involved with her? And I guess Steve just said, baby, when you're hooked, you're hooked. Whoa. Steve explained that his relationship had been romantic and sexual with Joyce, except for sexual intercourse. (gasps) Oh. Joyce was a strict everything but girl. Everything but P and P. Everything but the P and the V or the P and the P, depending what you're calling the lady bits. The P and the LB. This could go on and on. We will move on. (laughs) So Steve didn't know the details of Joyce's relationship with Kirk, apparently, because he did tell this reporter that he didn't think anyone had ever had sexual intercourse with Joyce. The reporter hounded Steve for racy pictures and Steve apparently said, oh, I mean, I have some pictures of Joy, but why wouldn't you just check the advertisements? What? 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 What What advertisements? (laughs) Well, it turns out that our gal Joyce had raised that tidy sum of cash by going by Joey and doing a whole plethora of naughty things for cash. Oh, my God. And, you know, Andy, we always stress that sex work is real work. And this gal, she was working her ass off. (laughs) She had a full on sex hotline going on in her apartment. Steve said that they had outfitted her apartment so that she could do, you know, the dirty talking phone lines. She did tons of nude modeling, all types, fully nude, bondage pictures with other girls, 
some sorts of fetish costume type stuff, posing with motorcycles. No wonder she has all of those costumes. (laughs) It all makes sense. And the bondage, we're all coming full circle here. (laughs) She was also a call girl. Her ad read, Wow. Gorgeous. Former Miss USA contestant. Desires work. Beauty, brains, and talent. PhD in drama, film, former model, actress, and state beauty queen, 38, 24, 36, a slim, sweet Southern blonde. How would you like her to leisurely bathe you, lovingly blow dry style your hair, and then give you a delicious nude massage on her fur covered waterbed? Wow, she really paints quite the picture. You could get all that for $100, which I think is like $500-ish in today's month. But no intercourse. No intercourse. Or try her fantasy room. Your fantasy is her specialty. S&M, B&D, escort service, PR work, acting jobs, nude wrestling and modeling, erotic phone calls, dirty panties or pictures, TV charm school fantasies. I don't even know what that is. TV charm school fantasies? Also, do you like how PR work is just lumped in there too? PR work and acting. (laughs) (laughs) She's got to work that drama degree. Mail your fantasies to Joey. And then it says, upper income clientele preferred. P.S. Joey says, and she put like the I as A-H because of her Southern accent. I love shy boys, dirty old men, and sugar daddies. Oh, yes, you do. Shy boys, dirty old men, and sugar daddies. Naturally, the reporter asked Steve, like, okay, so if she's going out on these calls and, you know, having these sexual relations with these men and she doesn't have sex with them, what's going on here? And he did say that she did perform oral sex, but again, it was everything but. And so the reporter's like, well, how did these guys take it? You know, these clients. And Steve said that she began bringing another girl who would just do the intercourse bit. So she would get them all hot and bothered, do, you know, the massage, the whatever. And then she'd pass them off to this girl named Laura, who would pretend to be a Russian exchange student. Oh, my God. It was a whole thing. The best part is that Joyce would bring Millie the sheepdog with a bugged collar. So if the Johns got pushy, Steve would be listening to a receiver in the car outside of the apartment or house or whatever. And if anything went sideways, he'd burst in to rescue the girls. So he was like their pimp? Kind of, but he said Joyce was very much in charge. He was kind of like their hired muscle, only she never paid him any money. Or had sex with them. Or had sex with them. Poor Steve. All together, through the advertisements and visiting publications that Joyce had worked for, the Daily Mirror collected somewhere between 800 and 1,000 erotic images of Joyce McKinney. Wow. On the same day that the Express dropped their very expensive exclusive with Joy, titled again, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told and featuring photos of Joy as a nun... The Express dropped their expose with all of Joyce's nudies called The Real McKinney. Oh, my God. So you can imagine which paper probably sold more copies that day. Definitely The Real McKinney. 
Yeah. And this is also, you know, we can make a lot of jokes at Joy's expense because she's a terrible person. This is very upsetting and extremely traumatic. You know, she is a rapist, but there is this global revenge porn glee thing happening in the media at this point. And it was a lot. I mean, this is hard situation because she had apparently signed release forms to get paid when you model. I think you need to, when you get paid, you need to sign release forms that they can use your image, obviously. So if these publications sold the images to the paper, I guess it was all on the up and up. Legally, they could publish these nude pictures of her. Do you have to always sign, especially with like nude work, do you have to sign releases? I don't know. I don't know what it was like in the 70s either. I mean, obviously, if you're doing an ad for like Calvin Klein, but it's a back channel sex work ad. Yeah, I'm just really, really surprised. So I think that this is a terrible outcome for her. I would be horrified if my nude pics ended up in, you know, the public domain. Yeah, it's not okay. It is not okay. So Peter Tory was with Joyce on the day that both papers came out because they were supposed to be celebrating. Yeah. Yeah. Her big feature. Yep. But instead, she got word of the smutty, smutty, smut, smut that the mirror was running all week long. And Joyce just lost it. Peter Tory said that her reaction was astounding. She threw down the phone and then ran to the windows, clawed her way up, like climbed the curtains. He said she was still dressed in her nun's habit, so she looked like a giant bat. Clinging to the curtains, she then swung out onto the balcony of the hotel room and tried to throw herself over the guardrail. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so Peter had to grab her by the ankles and pull her back in. He said that Keith was in the room, but he seemed like he was totally used to Joy just doing some of this crazy stuff because he was okay. like just sitting back and like looking and he's like, oh, she's fine. Don't worry about it, you know? And Peter Tory's like, what the fuck is going yeah. on? She's just being dramatic. So they ended up having to call a medic to get her sedated. Keith and Peter called her parents and by the time they arrived, for whatever reason, she lunged at her father and bit him so hard on the forearm that he started bleeding profusely. Um, At that point, she ran past them, went out into the hotel's corridors and ran around screaming. So the, the hotel had to call the police. Not well. So this is kind of the end of this phase in Joyce's life. Eventually, all of the hullabaloo faded. I mean, it took weeks and weeks and weeks. But eventually, you know, new stories came up, new scandals came up, and Joyce returned to as normal a life as she was ever going to have. The UK chose not to extradite, so they got off essentially scot-free for the kidnapping. And the FBI did end up chasing her down to a trailer in Kentucky where she was hiding out with Keith at some point, and they charged her and Keith with falsifying passport applications which both parties pled guilty to, and they were both handed a suspended sentence. So that was it. That's all the trouble she got into from this whole thing. Wow, that's impressive. 
Shortly after Kirk Anderson finished his mission, he moved back to Utah where he married a nice Mormon girl and the two settled down and had a lovely brood of babies. (laughs) He has never agreed to participate in any of the media around the case, including the 2010 documentary, preferring to leave Joyce and the whole spectacle behind him. Joyce, of course, was not finished with Kirk though. In 1984, Joyce was caught stalking Kirk at the Salt Lake City, Utah airport where he worked at the time and she was arrested. Oh my God. Joyce explains the situation away in tabloid as Kirk's disturbed overwhite Mormon wife saw me using a public airport and called the police. So she said it's like just happenstance that she was at the airport stalking this man she famously abducted and held captive for three days. She said that sadly, Kirk was working at the airport where he worked as a doo-doo dipper. Now, the filmmaker in the documentary is a, excuse me, a a what now? He was working as a what now? And she said, a doo-doo dipper. That's somebody who cleans the poop off the back of a plane. Oh my God. Yeah, and then she was got real rude about the wife, which we don't even have to get into, but she was like, I'm just going to say that she was no competition for me, and they had to get him married off to her right away so he would forget about me. She's, like, still jealous. These, like, 35-plus years later. Oh, my God. Wow. And also, <sighs> you shouldn't know what his wife looks like. Why do you know what his wife looks like? Because you were stalking him. We don't yeah, have we Facebook don't, yep, in yep. 1984. So you just showed your hand. You showed your whole ass. We know you were stalking him, bitch. Oh, my God. Wow. Gosh, yeah. Just lay off this poor man and his family. So after arrest, Joyce skipped bail and moved back down to the South. And luckily, she actually did stay away from Kirk and his family after that, after 1984. Okay. So I read that Kirk has had a very happy and long life. He became a realtor. And as far as I know, he's living the best life in Utah right now. Living that, that, that Osmond life over there. <laughs> but this story is not over. Yeah, I figured. So yeah, it's over for Kirk. And sadly, it is also over for Keith May, who became a plumber in California. And then he died of kidney failure in 2004. So goodbye, Keith. Joyce also made news in 2004 when she was accused of instructing a 15-year-old boy to break into a house in Tennessee so that she could buy a prosthetic leg for her three-legged horse. I wish I could give you more answers. I'm not well. I'm not. I'm not. That sentence did not. I tried to look up more details and this was it. It was she tried to convince a 15-year-old boy to break into a home to get money to buy her horse a fake leg. And she tried, so he didn't he did not do it. I do not think he he did. Did she actually she, have a horse? She did have horses. There's a, there's a horse on the documentary, not the three-legged one. She was charged with criminal conspiracy to commit aggravated burglary and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Why is she still free? Oh, oh, Andy, she jumped bail again. Again, she jumped bail. Why do they keep giving her bail? I don't know. I mean, I guess she's doing in these all different states or something. Yeah, I was going to say there has to be like no streamlined form of records too. you know, there's probably no digital 
search engine. Yeah. And I mean, about the stalking, they might have just dropped it when she didn't show back up, you know? (sighs) However, this was simply local news. Joyce once again made global headlines four years later in 2008 when she showed up in South Korea to clone her dead pit bull Booger. Where did Booger come in? Was he after Millie? Like, there's a lot to unpack here. So we're going to, we're going to walk it back, walk it back here. We're going to give you a little background. Uh, Booger is after Millie. At some point, Joyce had moved to the country and she said at that point she was becoming borderline agoraphobic. She had adopted a Mastiff English Bulldog Pitbull mix named Tough Guy that was this huge 150 pound dog. And she said that the tabloids and people who wanted to see her were still trespassing on her lawn at that point so that she got this humongous dog to be a guard dog and chase people off the property. She had also, a couple months after Tough Guy, also adopted a small little pit bull that she found on the side of the road. So she kind of had adopted him off the street and she named the little one Booger. Now, Booger was a real sweetie pie, she said. One day, tough guy got, he was stung by a bee. So tough guy was stung by a bee and she needed to take him to the vet to get some steroids to help him because his face was all puffed up. And she claims on the documentary that she got a prednisone prescription and that the pharmacist hated her, that the pharmacist didn't like her. So she says on the show, they thought it'd be pretty funny to drug that dog nutty. Well, it drove him more than nutty. The capillaries in his brain exploded. But not before he attacked me. He didn't know it was me. So she said that the steroid dose of prednisone melted his brain and made him attack her and that she claims the dog amputated her arm, which I do think she means tore it open pretty viciously, almost tore it off because there was a very long, deep scar on her arm. You can you can see it. Tore three fingers off her other hand. She still has those fingers, so they must have reattached them. And had ripped her intestines out of her stomach. This is what she says happened. Yes, the dog went completely bonkers bananas. And while he was attacking her, she said, Booger, Booger, come save me. And she said that this little pit bull jumped right in and defended Joyce in a fight to the death. And she said, quote, poor little Booger is going to give himself in a Christ-like love for me. But miraculously, Booger was the victor. This is some real dog style David and Goliath shit right here. Yeah. And so her intestines are still outside of her body, right? At this time? Yes. So apparently Booger must have also called 911 because she survives. Okay. This dog is now not a dog, not a pet. It is a friend. It's family. It's a saint. So when Booger passed away of cancer at a nice old doggy age, Joy was completely destroyed. She said as he lay dying, she was holding him. And she was crying and she was saying, oh, Booger, you can't leave me. You can't leave me, Booger. And she said that then he looked at her with these wise, big eyes and something in his eyes just said to her, 
oh, I'm going to see you again. Don't you worry, Joyce. And then he passed. And she said that this was the most miserable time of her entire life. She had had such a sad life. She had lost the love of her life. All of the tabloid mess that had occurred. This was the one good thing in her life. And she just wanted the hurting to stop. And that is when she found out about cloning. So she contacted a Korean scientist that she had read about who could clone pets. And using a piece of Booger's stomach tissue, he successfully cloned Booger, making not one, not two, not three, not four, but five Booger puppies. She named the puppies Booger Hong, Booger Ra, Booger Mac, Booger Park, and Booger Lee after the scientist who had accomplished the cloning. Your face. (laughs) I'm not understanding this. This was a $150,000 procedure, but Joyce promised them publicity in exchange for some of the bill being taken care of. It was reported that she ended up spending somewhere between 25 and 50 grand on the whole thing, which... Where was she getting this type of money when only four years earlier she was having a teenager steal money from a house for her horse leg? Exactly. I do not know. So she's now back in the global public eye because it was all over the news that they had successfully cloned five identical puppies. And now she had only jumped bail four years earlier. So she was trying to go by her middle name, which is Bernan. And everyone was like, oh, okay, Bernan McKinney, you're Joyce McKinney, the the famous Mormon sex slave lady. And she was going, no, no, I'll sue you if you say that. That's not me. I'm not her. And they're like, we know it's you. That's your face. You're still the same person. We can tell. She should have just gotten a new face like all the other criminals. Well, she couldn't afford a new face, Andy, because she had to save up for cloning puppies. All that funding went to Booger. Burger Park and Booger Mac and Booger One Booger Through Raw. So this obviously brought the whole case back into the public spotlight again. And at that point, because of this publicity around the dog cloning, filmmaker Errol Morris thought that Joyce would be the perfect subject for an incredible documentary. And he was damn right. Again, highly recommend tabloid. If you guys watch it, you will see that my accent is very poor, but I was right about everything else. So Joyce gleefully participated in this documentary. But after it came out sometime in the you know mid 2010s, she sued Errol Morris for portraying her as a quote, prostitute and crazy person. Uh, I'm pretty sure she did that herself. Yeah. she. I mean, she, the, the documentary is 90% her talking. So it's, there's one person responsible for that, babe. She sued Errol Morris. It, she also made all these like wild allegations like that she had not wanted to sign the release forms and that they'd like sent people to her house to shake her down or she had had to do it at gunpoint or something. In any case, Errol Morris completely had all of the proof that she had very willingly engaged in this documentary. He offered her $65,000. He's like, look, you're clearly having a hard time. Why don't we settle this? You can take a nice 65K. We'll call it a day. Very generous. And she said, no. She said, I know you have made millions off of that documentary and I want my fair share. Well, the court said, no, bish. And she got nothing. 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 She got nothing. She should have taken the 65K. 
Okay, so this is where our story takes a very tragic turn. In the mid-2010s, Joyce fell upon hard times and became homeless in the San Fernando Valley. She was living in her truck, and the boogers were all stuck in kennels in the back part of the truck. Oh, no. She was repeatedly arrested for various things, driving erratically, uh, disturbing the peace. She was not mentally well. Eventually, you know, the Humane Society got involved to take the dogs. The dogs were also not well. I guess two of them, I believe, had to be put down for behavioral or health issues. Oh, my God. That's so sad. So sad. And then three of the boogers were adopted, though. So three three of them were saved and eventually adopted. Okay, good. But it gets worse, Andy. In 2019, Joyce was involved in a hit-and-run accident when she ran over and killed a 91-year-old Holocaust survivor named Gennady Bolotsky. Oh, my God. It's beyond tragic. It's unbelievable. This wonderful man had come to the United States as a refugee during World War II to escape Nazi occupation. He was a father, grandfather, and great-grandfather who was walking his beloved dog, Leela, whom he had adopted after losing his wife of over 50 years. Oh, my God. At 5.40 in the morning, he was in a crosswalk when Joyce sped through the crosswalk, hit him, and continued driving. She apparently paused for a second and then kept going. Whoa. A good Samaritan called for help, but sadly, Gennady was declared dead in the ambulance. His dog, Leela, survived. Oh, $50,000 reward went to catch the hit-and-run killer. And eventually, Joyce was brought to justice. And finally, this time, she was unable to run away. She was charged with assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm, hit-and-run with injury, and vehicular manslaughter. And this, there was a, like... Note on this that it was particularly egregious because the victim was over 70 years old. Oh my God. Yeah. And on a crosswalk. The bizarre thing about this is that his family said that he had survived being hit by a car in that very same crosswalk 15 years earlier. Whoa. So this is crazy. So she was sent for a psych evaluation at the time of her arrest, and it was determined that she was not mentally competent to stand trial, unsurprisingly. At a follow-up hearing in February of 2020, she was once again ruled incompetent. I do believe that she is still in a state mental hospital. She is now 72 years old. I did find a obituary for a Joyce McKinney around the same age, but it was not the same area did not look like her. So I do not think it's the same person. And so I believe that is where she remains to this day. Whoa. What a roller coaster. I feel like Nancy is the only person who could have given us that story. (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, thank you so much for this wild, wild story. Did you have so much fun reading that? I think that when I watched the documentary was really when my eyebrow, my like, 
hair was blown off because I usually actually read the book first and then I watch whatever I watch on the case. And for some reason, this time I started the documentary first and I was like, what the hell is going on here? I feel like it's kind of cool that you did because then you could hear her accent through the whole book. Yes. And then when I was reading the book, I could actually picture her and hear her in my head. But to wrap it up, I mean, she really did become a cautionary tale for all missionary Mormons to say no to temptation, lest a woman beast such as she latch on to you and never let you go. Wow, she really is Mormon folklore. It is. The guy on the documentary said it's right up there with vagina dentata. Like the folk story about the vagina that has teeth yep. and bites yeah. your dick off. Yeah, like a, what's it called? The um, penis flytrap. <laughs> the penis flytrap. Oh, Joyce <laughs> McKinney, the penis flytrap. Wow. She said too, she said that she had the greatest love of her life and that's why she never married. She said that nothing would ever compare to Kirk and that she never loved anyone else. Because nothing compares Nothing compares to Kirk. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Oh, actually, I do need you to sing one more time because we do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. Okay, so I looked up the movie The Stud because everything about... The stud. <laughs> the, I mean, this. first of all, it's called The Stud. So you know that this is going to be some crazy shit, right? So yeah, I wanted to see what the plot of this movie was because this movie premiere sounded insane with Joyce McKinney. And I was like, okay, so let's see if this was an appropriate movie to be watching with this nutso. This is the plot of the movie. (laughs) Fontaine Khaled, Joan Collins, is the London wife of a wealthy Arab businessman. She spends his money on her nightclub, Hobo. And her rather hedonistic partying lifestyle, she hires a handsome manager named Tony to run her club, but it is understood that his job security is dependent on his satisfying her nymphomaniac demands. Tony loses interest in Fontaine as she treats him like a plaything and then turns his attention to her young stepdaughter, Alexander Khaled, who uses him to get back at Fontaine after she discovers a videotape of Fontaine and Tony having sex in the Khaled's private elevator, essentially cheating on her father. Fontaine then dumps Tony and is divorced by her husband for adultery. What was going on in the late 70s? A lot. A lot. So, quaaludes. Quaaludes were what were going on. Wow. Wow. So that was our journey today. Bravo, Jesse. Bravo. Thanks again to all of our patrons. And in conclusion, when you're dating, I just, I really don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, if he bounces, he bounces. There's many of, there's many fish in the sea, Andy. Yeah, for sure. Maybe you shouldn't like convince a 15 year old boy to rob a house but also like maybe you shouldn't get a three-legged horse. Like if you have to like get a prosthetic for, and then you have to like have someone rob. Which and I, then, thought, I thought that they just shot horses when they broke their legs. So yeah, yeah. What's and going then, on here? I mean, and then maybe you shouldn't get into like experimental puppy cloning in Korea. Wow, there's there's so maybe, many in conclusions. Maybe. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets stuck in a sex cottage. Thank you. Love you guys.